All right, glad to, uh, glad to have the chance to be with you tonight. Um, it's always really tough filling in for somebody on the introduction to something. Um, so you will, get, you will get my thoughts on, on the book of Ecclesiastes, and then next week you will get, you will get Alan's thoughts on the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, maybe some wisdom and multiple counselors there. Uh, but uh, I had planned in, in my class to really spend the bulk of tonight doing an introduction. Um, so that's, that's what we'll do. And then we will get into chapter one if time permits, and uh, hopefully that means I won't take up too much. Uh, Alan had this great, great handout that he prepared, um, and you can see that I did not fill in any of the questions uh, since I was not going to be in his class. So uh, I will try, though, to, to highlight a couple of the things uh, if we make it into the chapter at the end, uh, so I hopefully I won't put him too far behind. Uh, if I ask a question, I would love for you to answer it, um, so just... If you want to, if it's a short one, you shout it out. I'll repeat it for those that are listening on the, uh, on the devices. And if you'd like to make a comment, I'd love that as well. I've got a microphone here. Jonathan's got one back there. So if you have a longer comment, please just raise your hand. I'd love to hear what you have to say, as long as it's not too long. Um, but uh, somewhere, in the, somewhere in the middle would be great. All right, Ecclesiastes. So we're going to start in the book of Job, which is where every study of Ecclesiastes starts, is with the book of Job. Every time I begin to start a book, one of the things I ask myself is, why do I think we have this book? Okay, if if all scripture is inspired, so not a single word is going to be wasted, everything has been preserved and passed down through these thousands of years for me, why do I have this book? And we'll talk about Ecclesiastes in a minute, but I want to start with the book of Job. Um, There's a lot of things, obviously, you can take from the book of Job. Uh, We think probably, maybe primarily, about the patience of Job. Job was this righteous man that endured just unspeakable tragedy, and then he endured uh, unspeakable tragedies from his friends, and, and and he was patient, and he endured. But one thing that I think really jumps out at me about the book of Job, and hopefully you can see where I'm going here, is that Job really counters the narrative that if you live a good life, you will have a good life. If you are a good and righteous person, things will always be good for you. And by contrast, if you do bad things, well, then bad things will happen to you. That was what his friends were grappling with. They could not get over the fact, they're like, Job, clearly you have sinned. Clearly you have done something because look at all this terrible stuff that has happened to you. Even Job himself, what is it that Job wanted so desperately? He wanted desperately to have this, arbit- this arbitrator to come. He desperately wanted to be in front of the judge so that he could proclaim his innocence. They were all caught up in that idea that if I do good things and I live a good life, I will have a good life and bad should not come upon me. And, and not much has changed. That, that is the whole premise of the health and wealth gospel, right? If you are a good person, you will have good things happen to you. But w- we know that's not true. We know that there are terrible, terrible things that happen to very good people. I heard just the other day of, of two, two Christians that were killed in the tornadoes. Unfair things happen. Terrible things happen. Disease happens. All of these things happen to good and righteous people. And by contrast, we sit and we look at individuals that are the furthest thing from righteous, the furthest thing from pure and holy, And they enjoy, from at least the outsider's perspective, incredible success, incredible wealth, incredible happiness. 
and we struggle with this idea. So how do we make sense of it all? Well, I think the little glimpse that we get at the end of Job, and really where I'm going with this, and is I think expounded upon in Ecclesiastes, is that eternity is the answer. Eternity is the key. When you view life through an eternal lens, that is the thing that, that makes everything make sense. The final judgment is the great equalizer. How are individuals, the rich man and Lazarus, how are they brought together? It's in that judgment. In your life, you had your good things, and in Lazarus's life, he had bad things, and now he has his reward. Eternity, the final judgment, is the great equalizer, and it is the only way to make sense of the unfairness that we see around us. How else can we make sense of children that are harmed in schools? How else can we make sense of individuals that just treat their fellow man in unspeakable ways? There's eternity that I think is the key, and we see a little glimpse of that at the end of Job, and I really think Ecclesiastes just builds on that to help us to see that that eternal mindset is how we can make sense of all of this. But that's not easy. And in fact, if you look throughout the Old Testament, I think it is very difficult to see. I had this conversation with somebody the other day. You know, if you try to put yourself in the shoes of the covenant Israelites, how well do you think they were able to grasp eternity? I mean, it was, it was probably pretty tough, right? So much of the covenant was very physical. If so much of the covenant was, if you obey me, And if you are faithful to me and me alone, as God speaking there, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will give you this land. I will give you safety. Think think about this. The Old Testament, maybe, maybe think of it this way. I think about the Sadducees. You had this entire sect of the Jews that spent their entire lives reading through the Old Testament, and they came to the conclusion there was no resurrection. So so I want to give a little bit of grace to the individuals that lived under Old Testament law and struggled with that concept of eternity and a final judgment in heaven. Let me put this out there to you right now, though. If you had to prove to somebody from the Old Testament that there is a resurrection and there is an eternal home, where would you go? What, what verse do you think of? What story would you think of that you would point somebody to. Because there are, there are things there. And spoiler alert, Ecclesiastes is one of them. But if you weren't to look at Ecclesiastes, is there anything that comes to mind where you would go and you could see, all right, there's a glimpse of eternity. There's a glimpse of the judgment. There's a glimpse of the resurrection. What was that? Okay, yeah. So we have, we, he talked, uh, Brother John just mentioned Samuel coming back from the dead. So there's an individual who was dead, and then Saul, Saul goes, and he sees Samuel after he's died. So there's a concept of somebody who is not eternally gone. Yeah, what else do you think about? Not within the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just asking, I'm just asking in the Old Testament, where else do you see glimpses of, of eternity? Yeah, there's, there's those verses talking about the judgment. Yeah, 
Brother Kerry brings out Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and of course we'll look at that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and in verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment. So there we have, we have our, our passage about the judgment. David, David at the death of his son. Yes, that's one that I thought of. David at the death of his son. Uh, as Brother Bruce just said, um, he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. So there's an understanding of life after death. Yeah, as Brother Kerry mentions, Jesus did the exact same thing that we're doing right now. You know, Jesus reasoned with those individuals from the Old Testament to talk about those themes. So what I'd like to, what I'm just presenting is that while it is not readily apparent, and I can give a little bit of grace to those individuals that would struggle to see it, God did not just omit this. There are plenty of examples where he gives the people things to think about. He gives them these themes of judgment. He gives them themes of eternity. There are certainly places. Um, I, thought about, I thought about what Brother Bruce mentioned, uh, where he talks about David saying, I can go to him. Um, I, I thought about in Psalm 16, he is not going to abandon me to Sheol. Uh, in Ezekiel 37, that whole idea, the valley of dry bones, something that is dead being resurrected and being brought back to life. Um, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there are some verses there that talk about, uh, that talk about eternal life. So there are certainly places throughout where God talks about this, where God gives his people, yes, there are, there are some physical ideas and there are some physical blessings, but there is also, there's this concept of eternity. And I think that Ecclesiastes may be one of the very best ones. Uh, Ecclesiastes uh, talks about, and what I'll bring out later, what I think is the theme of the book, and maybe Alan will think differently, but uh, if you decide to go back to the back classroom, we're going to talk a lot more about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. He has put eternity in their hearts. I believe that is one of the big, big takeaways for me from the book of Ecclesiastes. Because without an eternal home, this life on earth can be extremely depressing. Um, all right, we'll play, play a little bit of a, I'll, I'll put some names out there, and I want you to tell me what do all of these names have in common. You may not recognize all of them. Uh, Tyler Helinski, Junior Seau, Jeremy Giambi, Anthony Bourdain, Robin Williams, and Naomi Judd. Does anybody know what all those individuals have in common? They all took their own lives. These are all individuals that were supremely talented. We have, we have pro athletes. We have famous travel chef. We have a country singer, actor. I mean, you have an individual like Robin Williams. People that we would look on the outside at having everything. They had talent. They had money. They had fame. And they took their own life. Okay, here's another one. Bernard Arnault, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Bill Gates. What do, what do all these individuals have in common? Yeah, they're rich, but what else? Yeah, the, these, are, these, are the top, these are the top four wealthiest individuals in the world, and they've all been divorced at least once. Individuals that have literally all the wealth in the world, and they have not been able to make their marriage work. 
Some of them multiple times. Okay? Here's another one. 280 million people. What do you think 280 million people might have in common? It's a little bit tougher. 280 million people. That's the number that I found of individuals that have clinically diagnosed depression. So they have actually been to a doctor and they have been diagnosed and are being treated for depression. 11% of young adults, so individuals between the ages of 18 and 30, that's, a, that's more than one out of every 10. Not individuals that are just dealing with something, individuals that have been clinically diagnosed with depression. So just think about this from a starting place. If you are someone who is looking to the world, who is looking to friends, who is looking to wealth, who is looking to work, who is looking to success for fulfillment, we are ultimately going to be disappointed. No matter how far we go, we could have all the money in the world and maybe still not be able to make a marriage work. We could have all the fame in the world and still be so depressed that we think it's not even worth staying in this life anymore. It, 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 really, it really is, I guess, startling to me when you start to look at the individuals that go down this road looking to the world for answers and thinking that if I just had a better job with a little bit more money, things would be so much better. If I just had more friends, if I just had a better support system, things would be so much better. If I just had a different spouse, things would be so much better. Looking to the world, looking to jobs and all those other kind of things for contentment and fulfillment, Ecclesiastes provides the answer. And the answer is you're looking in the wrong place. If you were looking to the world for all of those things, for contentment, for joy, for satisfaction, you're looking in the wrong place. All right, let's talk a little bit about the, the author, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes. Uh, as, we, as we've talked about before, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So we take this to be Solomon. Solomon is certainly somebody who, who fits, all of those, fits all of those things. Um, he is one who I believe we have already talked about in Brother Brian Bain's class, is uniquely qualified to write this. He's an individual that uh, was not matched by any when it came to wisdom and not matched by any when it came to wealth. He had a unique combination of both wisdom but also, uh, uh, but also the means to try to the fullest all the other possible solutions that this life might offer. Uh, I think it's interesting if you look at that Hebrew word for, uh, for preacher, there in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, it says the words of the preacher. Uh, in Hebrew, that means collector. Does anybody have any ideas why, why, would, uh, why, would, that, why would that word preacher be interpreted as collector? I'll tell you what I thought of. Uh, he is collecting all of his life experiences. He's collecting all of these thoughts and passing them on to somebody else. I, I just thought that was interesting. You know, I think when I think of a preacher, I think of an orator or a speaker or, or something else that has to deal with the mechanics, the projection, uh, you know, I guess the actual physical act of talking. I just thought that was interesting. That this word is somebody in Hebrew that means a collector. And I thought that was especially fitting 
when dealing with the book of Ecclesiastes, someone who had searched the span of human experiences to try to find something and had not found it. You know, when I think about collector, I think about a museum. I think about somebody who has just shelf upon shelf upon shelf of all these things that they found from all these places. But yet the message is that, yes, I've been all over the world. I've collected all of these things and none of them bring me satisfaction. I, I just thought it was, I thought it was an interesting word and, and one that I was not familiar with. Yeah, can you bring in the microphone? Just to add to that, um, when you look at the Hebrew term for the book itself, uh, just a note that says basically to convoke an assembly. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, when you think about ekklesia, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the Greek word for assembly, in one way you can say he's collecting the assembly. He's bringing the assembly together. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's another good thought. Yeah, it's another good thought. I just thought it was interesting. You know, sometimes you read things and some things are consequential and some things are not. You can decide for yourself how consequential it is to you, but I thought that was interesting to me. Uh, just, that, just that idea of, of collecting, collecting people together. Um, Solomon also, the, uh, the author of many of the Proverbs, the Psalms, Song of Solomon. But one thing that I would like to remind us of, and I think we all know this, but this, this is inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is inspired. I think sometimes it maybe is easy when we have uh, maybe free form poetry, especially Hebrew poetry, when we have a very personal account of experiences to put ourselves in Solomon's place, which I think is appropriate. But I think we can also sometimes lose sight that God, through the Spirit, wanted us to see every single one of these words. These words were provided to us at his direction. These are not the ramblings of somebody who is depressed. These are not the memoirs of somebody who just wanted to preserve his story or his legacy and maybe take and maybe let us take some applications from it. God wanted us to have these words, these exact words, to help guide and shape our lives as we try to be faithful Christians and servants to him. Chris? You you mentioned depression. Um, I I don't think that uh, as Christians we're immune to depression. Um, But, I mean, you you brought up the, the, the example of Job. Clearly, he was depressed and had plenty of reason to be. Jesus was more depressed than I hope any of us ever are. Um, But I think the point is that we have these words, this inspired word that that guides us when we are and gives us comfort when we are in those uh, situations. Yeah, and I believe that that is the ultimate wisdom of God that God does not provide words for us just when we are riding emotional highs. God does not provide words for us just when we are brand new Christians excited and on fire. God provides words and guidance for the young, for the old. He provides guidance for us when we are happy, when we are sad. Um, That's one of the things I think Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is going to talk about, all the different seasons of life, all the different times in our life that we may find ourselves. And And there is certainly wisdom there uh, God's, God's ultimate perfect wisdom, that he does provide guidance for us. And I, and I think if you're looking to, again, why do we have books like this? Why do we have books like Ecclesiastes, books like Job? And I do, I think it's good for us to be able to see no matter what stage or circumstance I find myself in, God has not forgotten me. 
God has provided something to steer me and to guide me closer to him, ultimately closer to eternity. Good thought. Um, One other thing uh, I wanted to mention about Solomon, and I think this was two weeks ago that that Brian, uh, uh, Brother Bain, brought this out. But we think about Solomon as the author, and I couldn't help but look at 1 Kings chapter 10, and we've mentioned this, but I just want to read 1 Kings chapter 10 and in verse 23. That is the section that talks about all of the different great uh, attributes of wealth that Solomon had. But you think about verse 23, it says, so, so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. All the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Again, just an individual that was uniquely qualified by his circumstance and by his life experience to write this because of that unique combination of both wisdom and rich. Uh, riches. You know, there, we probably know plenty of people that are very rich and not very wise. And by contrast, we know people that are very wise and not very rich. Um, and he, he, he possessed that combination that allowed him to not only speak uh, from experience, but of course also to speak by inspiration. Uh, this, is, this is a little bit of conjecture, but when in his life would Solomon have written this Uh, You'll see several things that would suggest, uh, especially based on the latter chapters, chapters 11 and 12, that Solomon would write this later on in his life. Uh, Those chapters talk about what it's like to get old. Um, It seems like someone there who is writing from personal experience. Uh, Also, just in my mind, when I think about somebody who is writing about eternity and writing about judgment, it's hard for me to picture the Solomon that we find in 1 Kings chapter 11. If you remember that the tail end of our study with Brother Brian, we were talking about Solomon being pulled away by his many wives, being pulled away to worship the Ashtoreths and to worship all the different idols. It's hard for me to imagine, not impossible, this is just, this is my, these are my thoughts, it's hard for me to imagine that individual writing about an eternal destination as they are worshiping other gods. It's hard for me to imagine an individual writing about the judgment of God while then going and worshiping other idols. And, and maybe that's just the optimist in me. Uh, I'd like to think that after that phase in his life, maybe at the very tail end of his life, he was able to come back around and use the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Um, uh, we, we certainly don't know that, but uh, that. That's, that's, that's my hope. Again, that's my, uh, my optimistic view on things. Um, whenever it was in his life, again, we don't have to worry about Solomon, Solomon the man and whether he was perfectly faithful or perfectly obedient at the time of his writing because we know who the ultimate author was. And you go back to that these words were inspired of God. We don't have to worry about the shortcomings of the person that wrote it. How often do we see that in our world today? Perhaps there's this great book that comes out and it's got fantastic advice and everybody's just raving about this book and then you find out some indiscretion made by the author and now all their words are invalidated and whatever good they could have done has been brought down by the indiscretions in their personal life, the slip-ups in their personal life. That's one of the wonderful blessings about having the Bible inspired by God is that we know that the men that wrote it made mistakes. We know that David committed sin. We know that some of the most faithful men of God fell short multiple times. And thankfully, we don't have to worry about that uh, eradicating the truth within. 
Take a little pause right there. Before I come back to my last thought, any, any other thoughts on Ecclesiastes so far? <clears throat> yeah, can you bring it to Gary? The thing that comes to my mind over and over and over again based on what you've been saying is the word intent. There's so much intent in the Bible. These words are given to us for a reason. There's, yeah. there's a real reason behind why we're being given this, and we need to understand that intention and act on it. Yeah, well, that's a good thought. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, none of these words are careless. None of these words are by mistake. Good thoughts, Gary. Anybody else? I'll just sum up uh, a little bit of what I thought, and again, I've already, uh, I've already kind of given this away in, some, uh, in some, some cases, but I think many people will point to that opening line in verse 2. That, that's the one that probably sticks out to you about Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, does that come across in a positive way or a negative way to you? I think it's pretty, that's pretty rhetorical. It comes across pretty negative. When I think of the word vanity, uh, I don't think of many good things. <laughs> um, it's easy, and I think if you were to look up the word vain or vanity, you will see synonyms like meaningless, pointless, futile. Uh, and there are certainly some elements to that. If we think about life under the sun, life without God, life without a view of eternity, there are certainly elements that are meaningless, that are pointless, but I also think that comes up just a little bit short of the full depth of what that word means. If you look that word up, it's this word uh, hebel or hebel. And there are many places where it's actually translated as breath or vapor. That's very different, isn't it? Breath or vapor is very different from meaningless, pointless, or futile. Let's look real quickly at some of those. Turn with me to the Psalms. Psalm chapter 39. Psalm 39 is interesting because we actually see both uses of the word in those same verses. So Psalm 39, and look with me in verses 5 and 6. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths. My age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. This is reading from the New King James, vapor. Some versions might have breath or something else similar to that. That's our word, that's our word, hebel. That's the Hebrew word hebel. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. Well, there's also our word, our word hebel. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Go to verse 11. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth, and surely every man is vapor. Again, also our word, the same word there. So you see, even just in the same context, this word has a lot of depth. And I think that's what I'm getting at. I I think that in some ways we sell ourselves a little bit short and maybe we miss some of what Ecclesiastes is trying to get across to us. If we only look at the word vain or vanity as just meaning pointless or futile. Because it can also, when you look about this idea of being thinking about a breath sort of a different connotation. Let's look at one other area, Psalm 144. Psalm 144. This is maybe a familiar verse to you. 
Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. When we look at the word, and especially uh, the way that it's interpreted this way, that brings about some, some more ideas to me. When you think about this idea of life as a breath or a vapor, uh, I think about three things. You may think of some others, and if you would, please share them with me. I think about the idea of being short. Life is short. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're calling to mind James chapter 4. James chapter 4, the admonition to us, don't make all these plans. I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. Your, your life is but a vapor. You know, we, we don't have any certainty as to the extent or the length of it. And in fact, when we look at it in the context of the very short history that we know, it's short. 70, 80, 90 years, if we're given that, in the scope of how long mankind has been around. Often we think about our country, the United States, and we think, man, how far away the Revolutionary War was. You know, that was like ancient history. Uh, and you're like, man, that's just... On the timeline, <laughs> it is not that far away. It's not that far away. Life is short. Um, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. That's another one. That's another one of those uh, same words. Uh, Hebel is also used there, talking about the beauty of a woman, but it says it's passing. Again, just giving you some more ideas. It's passing. That's, that's what our life is. Our, our, life is, our life is passing. And we have to come to grips with that. Uh, this idea of breath or vapor, not only is life short, but life is elusive. Uh, have you ever tried to grab a vapor or grab smoke? I mean, you can't, you can't grab it, you can't hold it in your hand, you can't contain it. That makes me think more about that idea from what we see in Job. You know, Job at the end, Job chapter 42, verse 3, he was like, you got me. <laughs> I was talking about things that I didn't understand. I, I, was, I wanted to come to the creator, and I wanted to argue my case, and I shouldn't have even walked in the door. When we think about our life as a breath, it's, it's elusive. There are things we don't understand. There are so many things we don't understand. We don't understand why people treat each other the way they do. We don't understand why some of these unfairnesses exist. Why do disease and just awful things impact the innocent? We don't understand that. Uh, this, this life is elusive. And the last thing I thought about uh, is life is repetitive. You know, you, know, you think about this, this whole idea of, of a breath or a vapor. We breathe, we respirate. Uh, you, can, you know, if you're wearing one of those little watches, look down right now, probably somewhere between 45 and hopefully not much more than like 65 or 70. Um, if you're above that, maybe, maybe go to the back and see my wife. Um, but... We breathe on a regular basis. You know, we take these regular breaths. That, that is part of life. And life is like that. We're going to see in chapter 1, there is this repetitive cycle to life. We may want things to be new. We may want things to be different. But life, life is repetitive, just like, just like our breath. And, and I think these themes will pop up in chapter 1. Um, does anybody else, when you, when you think about that idea down here with Mitch, that idea of, of, of breath, does that bring any other thoughts to mind? I'll let Mitch go. Uh, I think it's uh, used to set perspective in a lot of ways. A lot of what you're saying is uh, Solomon is not saying everything on this earth is worthless and yeah. we just all need to throw it out. Yeah. Um, because later on he talks about some good things. Um, but what he's saying is there's a, there's a perspective. So there's a perspective of time. There's a perspective of uh, you know, value. How valuable is it compared to 
other things that would be more valuable, uh, things like that. It's just you being used to set that perspective. I agree. Well spoken. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Uh, yeah, Chris, I'll get you over here. So Matthew 6, 7, uh, well, first of all, reading from the American Standard, all of those were translated as vain or vanity or vain, you know, some, some sort of uh, variation of that. But uh, Matthew 6, 7 in the American Standard says, And in praying, use not vain repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. So uh, it's, it's a, I, maybe there's, there's a, part of, part of the meaning is people talking without having a whole lot of meaning to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think what I really want to, uh, and any other thoughts, we'll bring you, bring you a microphone if you have something else that goes along. Bruce over there. I think that's what I want to get across is that, again, as I mentioned just a minute ago, as Mitch said, we, I think we miss the mark if we say that, eh, man, everything's just pointless. There's no point to this life because then we wind up right back, right back in that state. But there is, there is more, and I think setting it in its appropriate context is what he's, what he's trying to do. Bruce? And I think Jesus summed it up again in the New Testament when he said, what would, what would a person gain if he gained the whole world and lose his yeah. soul? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely right. Absolutely right. Anybody else? Uh, just, just, to, just to kind of tie all of this up. I, I was thinking about this as I was jotting down notes, and, and I, wrote, I wrote this down, to learn to live, we must prepare to die. You know, that, that is that idea that we've all been talking about of context. To do that, we must begin to grasp eternity. And that leads me to chapter 3, verse 11, to see things as beautiful, to be able to get beyond everything is pointless, everything is futile, everything is meaningless. God has made all things beautiful. But to be able to see that, we have to be able to realize that eternity that he has placed within our hearts. And when we start to look at things through that eternal lens, we are now able to start to make sense of some of the things that would be perceived as unfair. We're starting to be able to make sense and come to grips with the fact that I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to be able to take that smoke and put it in my hands and capture it right here. I don't need to do that. I can be like Job said and said, okay. I'm going to put my hands over my mouth. I'm done. We can understand our proper place before God, understand our proper place uh, in, in this world. Um, and so that, that's, what, that's what I'm hoping to get across as we, as we go on to study. And I think that point is brought out in the book of Ecclesiastes. All right. Uh, any other thoughts before we actually get into chapter one? Okay. So go ahead. Let's look at chapter one. I think you'll find, or at least I see, some of those same themes. The shortness, the elusivity, the repetitiveness is brought out a lot in this opening statement. Chapter one is really uh, like, like a prologue, um, a prologue of what he's going to do in the rest of the book. Um, I liked Alan's question, even though I didn't answer it. I looked at it on the way over. <laughs> but I did like Alan's first question here from this text. So the first 11 verses, if you had to kind of separate it out in chapter 1, the first 11 verses are are kind of one thought that are building on each other, and then he shifts a little bit in verses 12 through 18. But before we start getting into them, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, from this text, what is your overall impression of life, and can you give a one-word description that is not vanity? 
So I'd be interested to hear, if you, if you did answer that, what is the one word that you came up with from the first 11 verses? And you can just shout it out, and I'll, I'll repeat it, if it's good. Oh, nobody did Alan's homework? He is going to be so disappointed. Nobody wrote down anything. What? Wearisome. Okay, that's a good one. Wearisome. Anybody else? Revolution. Okay, yeah, revolution. That that makes me think about repetition, like the earth revolving around that cycle idea. All right, what else? Come on, don't be shy. I know some other people did the homework. Looking at papers. Phil, you got anything there? Looking. All right, consistent. Consistent. All right. Okay, well, I'll just have to tell Alan. That's all all it is. That's all it is. (laughs) Yeah, Shane's got something back there, Jonathan. Oh, I didn't even, Madeline, I didn't even see you. Well, if you, would you like, would you like to tell us what Alan thought? Did he leave you some, uh, you go ahead. I'm just going to, I'm going to grab a seat. Um, I couldn't really sum it up, but just that we, we need a purpose. Okay. That's what I thought. I like that. I like that. No, that's, that's good. Futile. Okay. Futile. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that question. That, that was a good, uh, that's a, good, that's a good thought question as you're trying, because I really do think chapter one, chapter one is a great introduction. Sometimes, you know, a book just kind of gets right into it, and then you kind of figure it out along the way. Uh, Ecclesiastes is laid out beautifully where I think he makes this opening argument. I mean, man, what a line. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That would kind of, that would, that, would, that would catch you a little bit. But then he goes on and he makes his point. He said, okay, I shocked you a little bit with this line. Now let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, what profit has man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? It's a pretty thought-provoking question. And, and profit, not so much from the idea of uh, not revenue, but net income. Uh, if you're it's like a balance sheet kind of person. Not what did you generate, did you get paid for going and working, but what do you have left over? If you have gone and you have toiled and you have worked all of your labor... What do you have left over at the end of the day? It should really make us think. I think that's the question that individuals struggle with. Um, what is my legacy? What am I going to be remembered for? <laughs> Harding asked me the other day, he was asking about uh, Kate's grandmother, and, um, and as I, was telling, I was telling him some things. He doesn't remember a whole lot about her. And he said, what about, what about her parents? I said, ooh, man, buddy. I was like, well, I, I know, like, one or two things. He said, what about their parents? It's like, I mean, I, I got nothing, you know? And, and it is, you, you start to do that. Think about, think about your own family. How many generations can you go back and know, know something, something meaningful, maybe more than just a name? You know, there are some individuals that, that, that spend a lot of time doing that, and they can go back several generations. But even then, we go back generations. You know, for a lot of us, you start going back two, three, four, five generations, we may not know anything. So what profit, what gain, what is left over after an entire lifetime? Just really a thought-provoking question there. Verses 4 through 11, I think now he kind of brings in the evidence to back up that strong, strong opening statement. Let's look in verse 4. One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. There's that context that we talked about. 
The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. It whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Other versions may say wearisome. I think, John, maybe was that your word? Uh, which I think is probably a better, better thing there. All things are full of labor. All things are wearisome. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. You know, when I think about, we'll stop right there, verse 4, just that idea, one generation passes away, another generation comes. Life is short. That, you know, we cannot control, you know, more than beyond just being healthy and doing some certain things. And even then, we don't have a whole lot of control over our passing um, and, and our going. These generations come and they go. Verses 5 through 7, I think, really hitting on that theme of repetition. These cycles that God has put in place. And again, I keep, I keep going back to Job. Um, these are cycles that existed before us. Cycles that will exist after us. These are cycles that we do not fully understand. And these are cycles that we cannot control. You know, we cannot, we cannot stem the tides. Uh, we cannot control the wind. Sometimes we try to harness it. Um, but we don't do a great job at that. Uh, we can try to work within the framework that God has given us, but it's gonna, it was here before us, it's going to be here after us. We can't control it, we can't even fully understand it. And then verse 8, I think verse 8 really kind of puts a, kind of starts to put a cap on things, and I do, I like, I like that word wearisome, because in contrast to the cyclical nature of the world, man is wearied by even the most beautiful sight and we're wearied by even the most pleasing sound. Look at what it says there. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. If you think about your favorite song, your absolute favorite song, how many hours could you go listening to that song over and over? <laughs> Probably not that long. Maybe some people longer than others. But we get tired. We get wearied with even the most, with even the most incredible things. If you looked at the Grand Canyon every single day, at a certain point in time, Maybe, maybe a really long time, you would probably get tired of it. You would want to see something else. That is our human nature. The shortness of our human nature is that even the most beautiful sight we grow weary of. Even the most incredible sound we grow tired of. And he, then I think he leads into verses 9 through 11. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the things that are to come. It's just interesting there, you know, by nature of our brevity of life, I think we are inclined to think that we are different. Something new is going to happen. You know, yes, maybe all those other generations, they couldn't figure it out, but I can. Uh, There's that old quote, you know, don't confuse uh, invention with imitation, and a lot of times, that's what we're doing. We think we're inventing something new. We're, we're just imitating. You know, if you're familiar with, the, uh, with Sisyphus, you know, rolling that rock all the way up, back to the bottom of the hill. Roll the rock all the way up, back to the bottom of the hill. And I think that's what it's saying here is that we have, I think, by nature of our brevity of life, we are doing the same thing that generations of people have done before us. We are looking for joy and satisfaction in the same places. We are turning to the world we're turning to people of the world. We're turning to work, physical things to get that joy and satisfaction. 
And if we keep looking in those same places, well, that's the definition of insanity, right? All right. Well, I'll go ahead and I'll stop right there. Uh, uh, go ahead. Alan, I'm sure, will pick up. He might do a little bit of a review uh, and correct some of the things that I got wrong. But then uh, go ahead and maybe do him a favor, answer those questions for him uh, in case he decides to ask you that for next week. But I appreciate your time.